You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Scream, released January 1st, 1981. It was written and directed by Byron Quisenberry and released by Calcom. I love his cereal. Yeah. Quisenberry cereal. <laughs> Two scoops of Quizens. Or no, berries probably. <laughs> this film was shot in sequence at Lake Peru and then Paramount Ranch in Agora over the course of 11 days. Writer-director Byron Quisenberry was influenced by Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians when writing the screenplay, but I've read that book and I don't see any connection. <laughs> yeah. Or any other horror film. Yeah. <laughs> they essentially ran out of money in the middle of production and edited together what they had. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. This was released in some markets as The Outing. I think that actually adds a little something extra to the fact that it was shot in sequence. And so yes. at some point they just like, this is it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I bet they got the whole thing on one spool of film. Like they, didn't, <laughs> they just had to stop down between shots. We only have one spool, so. We'll just expose this one multiple times. It'll be fine. <laughs> we open with an ultra slow pan across a bedroom wall as a clock strikes midnight. Or noon. Or noon, maybe. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's my first Just note. as spooky. It's quite possible in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's like, well, we're in a room with no windows. I'm going to assume that it's midnight. But, but I think they're it, at some, they're on some part of the planet where it's only daytime for a couple minutes each day. Yeah. We see figurines of a butcher, baker, and candlestick maker all lined up alongside the clock. And suddenly, the baker and candlestick maker are decapitated. And the butcher's eyes move suspiciously <laughs> via stop motion animation. Now, am I crazy? Do these figures represent anything in the film no. as far as you can tell? No, they don't. Like there's no correlation to people in the movie. The right? closest thing I can come up with was the butcher survived, so he's the killer. And he's yeah. doing, you know, the suspicious dog thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh looking back and forth. But like it but later on I am that's incorrect. So but also, I'm just saying, like, is somebody in the movie a butcher? No. Okay. There's no butcher. There's, there's no, no baker. Okay. There's no candlestick. But they're, that they are in a tub. A rub-a-dub-dub. Three-minute tub. Huh? No. Never heard of it. Because there's three people, a, no. like, three people in a raft. It's like a tub. Kind of. No. Anyway. <laughs> no, <we're laughs> we got our title card, and it looks like we're about to watch an episode of, like, Are You Afraid of the Dark or something. <laughs> It's like Nickelodeon font. Yeah. Uh, apparently, that whole opening bit was director Quisenberry's apartment where they shot that scene. Well, yeah, it doesn't match any of the rest of the footage of the film. <laughs> Until it comes back at the very end. The next day, we cut to people rafting in a river down a canyon. After the rafting, everybody has to hike up a very steep hill with camping equipment. At the top of the mountain, they find Paramount Ranch in Agora, California, which we've mentioned previously on the show after its use in Galaxina. It's also maybe 15 minutes down the road from where we're recording this, though it has been rebuilt and burned down a number of times since this film came out. Yeah. We get these really weird five to ten second establishing shots of this empty western town with nobody in it. 
like they're they're establishing shots of the city and we hear everybody talking as though they're in frame Mm -hmm. but they're not yet they're just walking toward it out of frame and then finally some people enter frame a girl named laura stops for a moment because she feels a chill from this place one of the men ross stops another guy al to point out a building that they could have built themselves this plays no part in anything nobody yeah. builds anything in this movie we none of these characters get any development beyond a name well yeah because like at this point i'm like okay so these guys are like contractors by trade is this some sort of retreat for their company like yeah i cannot figure out why this group of people is here together in this place at this moment and they spent a lot of money too this seems like a city slickers situation where there are people who are going on this hike but they're a group of people who don't know each other right yeah. the only way they know each other is that they've all signed on for this hike and they've met each other along the way right like they may be pairs of friends but yeah yeah, yeah. they don't know each other beyond them and and one character doesn't want to talk about business while yeah. they're out here he's telling al that he doesn't want to talk about work because he reminds al all work no play makes for a dull life which is obviously a paraphrasing of the proverb all work and no play makes jack a dull boy which we last saw typed out ad nauseum by stanley kubrick's secretary for a scene in the shining last year another camper bob lights up a cigarette and mocks everybody for spending a hundred bucks to camp out in this dump of a fake town hundred bucks a piece to look at a slum in a desert could have stayed home and done that but presumably he also yeah, right? spent that hundred dollars yeah. maybe they had to pay a hundred dollars because he didn't pitch in or he just charged <laughs> them all i found this cool thing give me a hundred bucks an older man asks bob to relax and try to enjoy himself we cut to night on the same street in this wild west town laura stands by a support beam on a porch when her father surprises her with a hand on her shoulder we cut inside one of the rooms where a camper is getting picked on for wearing pajamas to bed i guess yeah uh, like i guess he's just dressing in layers but he is wearing a hat to bed which i totally disagree with sure (laughs) but he's so he's climbing into a sleeping bag and the guys that are making fun of him Uh, and i don't tell me you really believe in ghosts it's like, what is that based on? Yeah. But it turns out they're right that this character yeah. believes in ghosts, but they base that off of the fact that he's wearing pajamas to bed. I don't mm-hmm. think he's wearing, I thought he was just wearing his clothes and they yeah. were making fun of him for staying dressed because he's like alert and ready in case something goes wrong. But they assumed that what he wants to be alert for is a ghost attack. Yes. And they assumed correctly. Yes. <laughs> Next thing you know, you'll tell me you believe in the Easter Bunny. Lou is the butt of way too much in this movie yeah and and causes a lot of problems but they're problems that are caused because people are making fun of him yes and i found it really frustrating <laughs> yeah that he's getting picked on for next to no reason even yeah. after things bad things start happening you're just like oh he has totally legitimate reasons to be upset yeah mm-hmm. stop making fun of him pajama dude moves his sleeping bag under the stairs one foot to the right from where he was sleeping to avoid their mockery i mean he could still hear them from here it's not mm-hmm. going to help his situation we get another extremely slow pan down the street past the dude on a porch who's just singing to himself uh pajama lad who we will learn is lou is awoken by dogs barking in the night he hears doors creaking and footsteps approach him he's looking up from his sleeping bag at the underside of the stairs and I think we're supposed to understand that the, the steps are coming down the stairs above him. Mm-hmm. But that that's the end of that scene. Yep. <laughs> uh, 
Later at night, a girl runs around with a flashlight cursing to herself. <laughs> uh, another girl wakes up and calls to her friend Laura. Laura! Because she's scared of something, and Laura answers. What? That's the end of that scene. <laughs> And we're like at least 30 minutes into yeah, the film right now. It's yeah, it's l- taking a long time to unfold. <laughs> These I, pans are incredibly slow. <laughs> I, I really wanted this movie to be like a joke in the sense of like every time you think something really scary or crazy is going to happen, nothing. And then it just it just ends with them like finishing up their camp. Yeah, and that's how home. David Wayne would have directed this. <laughs> it's like it's like you, you, you're on the cusp of thinking something terrible is going to happen, but it never does. Yeah. It's, it's not even implied that anything terrible happened. It's yeah. just you keep expecting it. A man in a captain's hat sits on a barrel with some coffee, but when the girl with the flashlight comes back from her midnight dump around the corner, the man <laughs> on the barrel is gone. <laughs> and the music wants us to find this a compelling mystery, but we don't. But was this guy... Who was this guy? He was just another one of the people that was there, and he was sitting there for a moment, and then he wasn't. Was he one of the guys, or was he... A, a ghost. ghost. <laughs> Is that really what they want us to ask? I I don't know. I'm just saying. I was 99.8% sure this was just a guy. And then 0.2% sure that maybe it was a girl. I don't know. But it's <laughs> definitely not a ghost. Probably just listening to the sounds of her straining. It was just like, oh, man. Pull out an O-ring. <laughs> Drop a lung. <laughs> if he was wearing like a captain's hat, I feel like it could have been a ghost. Oh. oh spoiler alert. That actually is a spoiler. I don't know why, but it is. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I I know why it is, but I also don't know why I, it is. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> she holds this flashlight pointed at the barrel for a long time, considering she never saw anybody sitting there and wouldn't be surprised to find it empty like we're supposed to. She shines her flashlight through a crack in the door, and we hear what sounds like an engine failing to start. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that was supposed to be. I thought it was maybe they just ran out of people getting hung sound effects. <laughs> I I thought it was like supposed to be the sound of her flashlight malfunctioning in some kind of way, but it's clearly like a diesel engine that won't start. Yeah, it was like woo 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 woo, and uh, and then a man is dropped into a noose. And, and so what I thought it was at this point was that this is like like a theme park kind of thing. Like it was a joke. Like yeah, a yeah, fake, yeah. A fake body that was triggered by something that she stepped on and that was the sound that we were hearing was it activating yeah but no we just cut we right never to, explained that the flooded engine sound yeah <laughs> but then we just cut to oh yeah this guy's dead oh who died doesn't matter doesn't matter it was this somebody's guy. dead her screams ring throughout the camp and everybody wakes up to check on her the entire group gathers in a well-lit cabin and stare silently across the room at each other bob speaks up first to declare that one of these campers is clearly the murderer. It was a, it was in a noose. Isn't yeah. that generally considered suicide? Especially if he wasn't shouting or making any noise before yeah. he was hung. Why would you conclude that that was murder? Laura's father, John, posits that an outsider might be responsible, but we also haven't gotten a good look at the crime scene, and a hanging is a pretty popular form of suicide from what I understand. <laughs> I'm not even clear who died yet. Yeah. Sounds like it was Alan that died because Bob calls out Ross as being a friend of the deceased and Al is the only person who we've seen talk to him. I just want to say I am blown away by the fact that 
any of you guys know names of anybody in this movie. I had to like look at pictures of the actors to figure out well, who people were. It, it, it was like a game of Clue. It was like <laughs> in the sense like, oh, you called her Laura. Right. So she's not Laura. So I can cross Laura off the list. <laughs> yeah. There's two other women. It's a, it's a Sudoku cast where <laughs> everyone's name gets mentioned one time and you have to pick it up. Is your guy wearing glasses and does he have curly hair? <laughs> Bob is suspicious because Ross isn't sad enough about Alan's death. And Bob turns his target on the tour guides for this trip. What do you two have to say? It's part of the tour? No, it isn't. They confirm that this is not part of the tour. (laughs) And that they will report it to the local sheriff's office first thing in the morning. We pan across one of the interiors of the shacks and slowly zoom in on a butcher knife hung on the wall. Ross asks the tour guides where they're storing the beer. And for some reason they're not storing it where they are right it's they're keeping it in the old-timey jail down the way and so he points him in that direction and he asks if anybody else wants one and then heads alone to the jail down the street he almost leaves with one beer before remembering the second order and gets two steps back through the door when we hear him attacked off screen now this was the guy that they just accused of possibly being the murderer because he wasn't bereft right bereaved bereaved uh but uh, they let him go so casually. Like, like what if it was the murderer? Yeah, it was like, just left. oh, I'll be right back. Wink. <laughs> yeah. You just, you just come out, you just hear a car door slam. <laughs> what a lazy asshole. He can't even walk down to the old-timey jail. The door to the old-timey jail slams shut, and we cut to them finding his body later. Nobody is quite sure what to do. Two men standing at the door to the second crime scene stutter over their lines here, and nobody bothered for a second take. There, mu- there, there must be something in here to help us find out who did it. <laughs> when everyone leaves, John tiptoes through the building with a flashlight, pushing open doors to investigate the structure. We see someone behind John lift the bloodied butcher knife that was presumably just used to kill Ross, and then we see John's flashlight smash against the wall as though... It were being chopped from his hand. John's hand crawls helplessly across the floor until the butcher knife is swung down a couple more times finishing the job. Back in the well-lit cabin, we hear Laura humming Brahms' lullaby to herself. The last time we heard this was in Galaxina as the men prepared for stasis transportation. We pan across that same butcher knife hung on the wall and dripping with blood now. Bob complains to everyone that they're not doing anything about these murders, even though he's not either. Like, they're like, what about you? And he's like, I'm not in charge. And I'm like, oh, well, who's do, in charge? Do, do, do you want to be in charge? <laughs> and what would you do if you were in charge? I, who, actually, who is in charge? Yeah. I don't understand. I mean, I guess technically the tour guides are in charge. But I don't think that there is a system in place for someone to be in charge. Yeah. So him saying, I'm not in charge here, is like, well, no one's in charge. We're all individuals. This isn't a, a, a society. Yeah. There's no hierarchy here. Now, this is incredible. We could all be killed just like that, and we sit around like a bunch of idiots doing nothing. Well, why don't you do something about it? I don't run this show. At this point, Bob's the only person I'm sure is not the killer because he's way too much of an asshole to also be the bad guy. We fade to sunrise. When the campers return to the river the next morning, they find their rafts have been stolen. Someone asks when the people at the pickup point will come looking for them when they don't show up, and the tour guides estimate that they won't find them until late tonight. 
They suppose further that they may not be rescued until the following day, and the only road out of here is a 30-mile walk to the next location. Back in the Wild West town, a pudgy guy in a baseball cap, this is Lou again, he starts exploring on his own through these buildings. He finds the bodies of the stored victims when a door closes and locks behind him. He manages to break out of the building and runs to safety, but suddenly the stranded people hear motorcycles approaching and engage in a short standoff with these motorcycles. But like, okay, if you if you are in this situation and you need help, the second anybody with a vehicle gets near you, aren't you trying to go flag them down? Yeah, I, we yeah. got to get 30 miles that way today. Right. We got to get help. We got to get help now. Maybe you have a, a you know, a a radio on your bike mm-hmm. or or something or maybe or, they're the killers but either way they they don't try to engage them at all they just no. stare at them and yeah. like what's gonna happen <laughs> the friendlier of the two bikers introduces them as jerry and rod jerry never says a word or takes his helmet off so rod's the one doing all the talking here later while eating lunch lou looks upset about something and sets his food down to walk away. Well, I think they, I think everyone's staring at him because he's he's eating so much, or he's eating loudly. He's or... not eating much more than anybody else. I agree. Yeah, but everyone's staring at him, and he feels bad and walks away. Yeah, and I was I was guessing that it was because like either he took too much, or he's eating so enthusiastically for somebody who just witnessed several murders. Like he didn't <laughs> lose his appetite. At yeah. All. This whole next sequence pisses me off. Yeah. That night, the soundtrack changes to an electric guitar-heavy score as a club remix rumbles through the town from a radio in the well-lit room. Lou hears wolves howling outside and moves to investigate again. Well, well, hold on. No, there's more There's more to this scene because it really, again, this makes me so mad. First of all, this radio is blaringly loud. Yeah, and, and everyone's cut, trying to sleep and this on. No, that's the thing. No one is trying to sleep. The, 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 this whole thing. So... The radio is really loud, and then it cuts out for no reason. That doesn't disturb Lou. But his alarm clock going off, because he brought a full-on ringing bell alarm clock with him. And he set it to go off at midnight. At, like, middle of the night. <laughs> he wakes up, and no one is around. And he starts running around the town, looking for things. He's tripping over rocks. And then eventually, but he thinks everyone's playing a prank on him. Right, he's calling out to everybody, and no one's responding. Hey, Andy, is this some kind of joke? Because if it is, it's not funny anymore. Guys, hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he he like a, a tarantula crawls on him, but eventually he finds everybody because everyone apparently went out looking for him, even though he hasn't moved. He has. He. This is the sequence of events. He was eating loudly. They stared at him. He walked away. He turned on the radio really loud and then went to sleep. And and then everyone else in the town thought he disappeared and went looking for him. Yeah. And they're he, mad at him for being here. Yeah. When wasting their time when they all on their own decided to overlook his sleeping body. Yeah. And go find him. And the loud playing radio. And that tarantula, by the way, that was crawling on his hand, that was actually the director's hand as a director cameo because... Oh, I thought you were going to tell me it was the director's tarantula. It was actually the director. <laughs> that makes Byron Quisenberry sense. is a tarantula. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he better have a top hat and cane and monocle with a name like Byron Quisenberry. Yeah. <laughs> as a tarantula. 
Yes. Does he need like eight canes? <laughs> <laughs> Four canes. Oh, Alternating sorry. legs. Right. While he's still looking for them, he runs until he's out of breath, and then he gets tackled by a dead body, by which I mean a corpse is just draped over his shoulders, mm-hmm. and he falls forward under its weight before running away. And that's when the rest of the campers show up, and they're like, we've been looking for you. Was Even this a new dead body? We, 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 it's never clear they, they what never it is. They never show the face of it. Um, but now everyone's standing outside the well-lit cabin, and Laura tries to bum a cigarette off of a non-smoker. Got a cigarette? I need something to calm my nerves. Sorry. I don't smoke. Damn. When are they going to get back? When will who get back? What are you talking about? Did the guides leave again? We didn't see them say, we're going to go get help and leave. Well, yeah. So Jerry rode off with one with a guy named Stan. And yeah. I don't know yeah. who Stan is. <laughs> he must be one of the guides. But both guides left. I think. No, one oh, one, guide, one guide and one of the motorcycle pair. Jerry. Oh, okay. Jerry left. So Rod stayed with them? Yes. Correct. Okay. We see a guy in a red shirt wander around the well-lit cabin until he seems perplexed by a broken mirror. That's Rod. I don't know what's so impressive about this mirror. Well, he keeps seeing something in the reflection. Now, I can't see what he's seeing, but he keeps looking at the mirror and then looking over his shoulder and then looking back in the mirror again. Yeah. But then when he finds it broken, he's like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Yeah. Okay, I couldn't tell if there was anything in the mirror either. But I don't then think there is. I was also questioning the cover box for this movie, or like the poster art. Have mm-hmm. you seen it? It's it's like a woman in a cracked mirror. Yeah. Like an illustration of, of her screaming. And I'm like, is that, because that, I don't see that in the movie anywhere. Right. Yeah. We cut outside for a moment where the other campers complain about the cold when suddenly Red Shirt is blasted through the wall out into the street. He's dead. Rod has been killed. He was thrown through the wall and he's just straight dead. But there's no trace of a killer. Damn. Nothing. Not a damn thing. Well, and rather than check the opening in which he was thrown through. Right. They They go through the door. They go through a different entrance in search of his killers. Like, He's probably in the room that he was just thrown out of, not in a completely different room. Yeah. The survivors bicker amongst each other in the absence of any foreseeable rescue or escape. They hang up a string of aluminum cans around the porch of the building as an intruder alarm, but unless they think an animal tied the noose that the first victim was hung from, they understand they're dealing with a human killer who would easily see and step over this obstacle. One of them even calls this out as a means of excusing the plot hole. In the middle of the night, they hear cans being dragged and two men race toward the noise. Nothing, Lou. What do you mean nothing? Just a possum. Janice wakes up mid-panic attack and runs down the street to the building where the cans are tied around it. Wait, they aren't all staying in that building? Nope. (laughs) What was the fucking point of this? Like, why did you set up an alarm on just one building? But now she trips over the can line, and someone following her raises an axe to attack. Awoken by her screaming and the can line, the campers find her body on the porch. Uh But apparently she is fine. Yeah, the cans did work. (laughs) But I don't know why they worked. She has no visible wounds, but she's asleep when they bring her inside. Mm -hmm. 
For as much as everyone keeps saying it would be impossible to get back to sleep after so many people have been murdered, everyone keeps falling asleep rather easily, especially considering that they're all sleeping, sitting up on wooden benches and chairs. Well, there, there's even a line of, yeah. I think it's weird that we all fell asleep at the same time. It's like, are they being gassed or drugged? <laughs> yeah. Kind of strange we should all fall asleep at the same time. They talk about how crazy this killer must be, and then Lou starts into his ghost talk again. Well, he's got to be crazy. A raving lunatic. I mean, it's just not human. Maybe he's not... What? Nothing. Suddenly, a standard sound effects package blows through town. We hear a rattle, a bell ringing, and a glittery magic sound. But none are accompanied by any visuals. (laughs) Finally, an hour into the movie... The fog in the street clears as a man rides up on horseback. Well, yeah, and there's a weird thing. Like, the fog, we get we get an insert of a clock about four or five minutes away from midnight, cut to some fog rolling in, and then another insert of the clock now at midnight. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what was the purpose of, was it to establish that five minutes have passed? Well, yeah, I had to back well, it up. Well, we didn't want it to suddenly be midnight on you. <laughs> I had to back it up and, like, check the clock time again, because I was like, wait, did we really just do a clock transition for, like, a couple minutes of time passing because yeah. I was like, that certainly couldn't be what they had just done. Yeah. But it was. But it is. The cowboy on this horse is played by Woody Strode and he's pulling along a second horse with what looks like a body bag draped over it. One of the men uncovers Jerry's body without even speaking to the cowboy and then we cut inside the cabin where everyone just stares at the guy for a solid 15 seconds without speaking. This whole stupid movie could be edited down to 10 minutes without cutting out a single detail. (laughs) They ask him if he saw the other guy when he found this body, and he launches into his resume for some reason. I was a sailor, you know, for 40 years. Sailed the horn 35 times. Great. And where do you see yourself in five years? (laughs) Hopefully finishing this story. Me and the captain. We came here when they give him nary another ship. Sorry to interrupt. Did you kill our friend here? <laughs> Did you kill our other friends? They were cruel men. Thems that run the ships. Company men. The cowboy shows them all a watch he got as a gift from the captain after their first sail around the horn. It was a compass. It was a compass. Oh, was it a compass? Yeah. yeah. Well, a, a compass. A compass, sorry. <laughs> and we hear this the magic twinkling sound again. It seems like writer-director Byron Quisenberry was a big fan of John Carpenter's The Fog last year, but not as big a fan of editing. <laughs> well, And the compass starts spinning around crazily like Jack Sparrow's compass. Yeah. We see another extreme slow pan so that we can see a door move slightly for absolutely no payoff. We go right into another slow pan outside and it seems like the cowboy still hasn't said anything relevant or useful to these people. They all just stare at him on his horse silently, and he turns to leave, and we just watch his horse for a full minute slowly wander back into the fog. So he never answered any no. questions. Nope. He never explained anything. But they also didn't, like, I think they asked once. They didn't insist on him answering anything. They didn't be like, stop telling me a stupid story about your ship and talk to me about what the hell is happening in this town. It should have just turned out the next morning that, yeah, that guy did it. He's yeah. a crazy guy with Alzheimer's and he comes out here and murders a few people every year. <laughs> this was like a large this was like a large Marge situation. Yeah. Where this character comes in for no reason, tells the story, and then just leaves <laughs> completely irrelevant to the plot. 
Then we watch the survivors slowly file back into the building. One of them, Rudy, sees a light in the building across the street and moves to investigate. He intends to go alone, but the entire <laughs> town comes with him. Right, because that's the smart thing to do right. at this point. Yeah. They spend five minutes crossing this street, and the building <laughs> is empty except for a rat. Then Rudy has a brilliant idea. He's going to go die somewhere else. Here, hold this. I'll be right back. Rudy. I'll be okay. The rest of you stay here. And don't go outside. Rudy. Rudy heads back to the well-lit cabin to collect coffee fixins. His, <laughs> his brilliant plan. We got to have some coffee. When he starts to hear creaking doors and leaves uneventfully. Nothing happens to this Why guy. did they want to then stay in the other building? Because there's question. no supplies in the other building. And, and they'll no have lights. to cross the street constantly. I want to go to the place where there's no lights. And no top of the line tin can alarm system. Yeah. And, and is a little spookier because we saw something like floating in here a moment ago. And there was a rat in here. And, and how about y'all stop falling asleep at the same time yeah. and then randomly running out into streets? All that has changed in the last 10 minutes since the cowboy disappeared is that the survivors have relocated from one nondescript building to another one. <laughs> well, you know what? I think I think I know why. I feel like this was a set in somebody's garage for this other building. And oh yeah, it's maybe. Just like we 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 need we can't be out here on this ranch anymore, so we have to have them go to another building. We'll have this set built in a garage oh of God. just them sitting in this room. I promised that we would only shoot with one actor at a time in his garage moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> they board up the only door. Rudy paces and sniffs nervously until Bob shouts at him to cut it out. But that takes like three minutes of him walking back and forth and sniffing over and over again yeah. until Bob flips out on him. Suddenly, there's a pounding at the door and they open a small window to look outside. When they find nothing, they decide to open the door completely. And Stan, the other guide, stumbles through the doorway. One of the survivors rushes back to the other building for the first aid kit. And while he digs through supplies for it, he is attacked and thrown around the room before getting force strangled up the stairs by an yeah. invisible presence this is all weird adr over mm -hmm. top of it yeah like very awkward I, I i guess it was to make it seem like he couldn't scream for help yeah like like he had somehow been injured in his throat and so he's going yeah and so because because you got to wonder like why wouldn't he call for help right uh but also why not just take the whole bag of supplies back why no, no, no. Why, i just need one i thing? just need one thing from this bag that's why you put the i first need the aid. exercise i gotta get my steps in today you know when you're packing for a hiking trip you want to pack the first aid supplies near the top of the bag for easy access you mean not underneath the giant alarm clock that no. full-size alarm clock you bought that's set to midnight <laughs> <laughs> eventually this guy gets dropped over a balcony and he lands on his back on the ground floor before an axe is swung into his neck finally like, I mean, as far as a kill that we see. Yes. Every other kill has just been implied. Or we're not even sure if it happened. Yeah. Even though we have a safe shack across the street, we are keeping all the supplies in a separate building and scurrying over one at a time until they're needed. And now, despite having intentionally boarded up the door, Bob is outside smoking on the porch <laughs> by himself. <laughs> Lou leans out the door just in time to see Bob killed with a scythe. He ducks back inside and holds the door closed as the killer tries to bust in. 
Everybody tries to hold the door closed together, but the killer gets it open wide enough to pull Lou outside. And Lou is a big guy. Yeah. Like, there's no way... Like, I, at first I thought Lou was trying to hold the door closed, but everyone else was trying to open it. <laughs> to shove him out. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I, I felt like they were trying to get out, and Lou was trying to hold the door closed, because it makes no sense that all of these people holding together would could not hold the door closed enough for a full-sized man to be yeah. pulled out. And this whole sequence is so poorly directed and edited that I'm not clear what plot they're even trying to convey, so I have to hazard a guess here. The killer slams the door and then pounds on the wall, showering everyone inside with loose pieces of wood. Lou is laid across the floor, and the killer reels up to slash him with a scythe when gunshots start ringing out. (laughs) And then the scythe is dropped, stabbing into the porch. The cowboy returns, I think, having shot the killer to death. Mm -hmm. And then Uh he leads a pickup truck down the main street to rescue everybody. Uh, I I disagree that he leads a pickup truck. I think that he came in, killed the evil thing, and then vanished just as a pickup truck arrived. Okay. Because he's not in any other scenes and the only thing that we see left from him is his compass on the ground. Right. But this older couple get out of the truck and they approach the barricaded building. They see Lou splayed across the porch, but he's still breathing. So apparently he survived. But insanely, there is no killer on the ground. And confusingly, we pan across the ground to see the cowboy's compass just beyond Lou's reach in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And then we crossfade back to director Byron Quisenberry's apartment where we see a painting of a ship at sea in the same room for the intro and now the butcher is also decapitated i guess because the killer was killed like i thought the butcher represented the murderer yeah but now the murderer has been murdered uh and then uh we pan up to this painting the working title for this film was butcher baker candlestick maker which is the only possible explanation for these (laughs) cutaways but that it was yeah, never then, released under that title anyway. but then that also does not relate to the story mm-hmm. correct yeah even if you even if you relate the title to these figurines well because like you could you could almost make a connection to butcher only in the sense the of the butcher knife the butcher knife but a there's no no there's no kill that would involve any kind of baking tools and certainly not any candlestick making. Yeah. Like if a guy had like been dropped into a vat of wax and and then another person right. like but put into an oven or something. We're also that? presuming that we're also presuming that the sea captain is our murderer. Well, so the clock strikes 12 and we pan up to this oil painting in the apartment and I can't tell if this is supposed to be the Woody Strode character or the captain that he sailed with. Uh, in the painting right yeah but the woody strode character on imdb is credited as charlie winters despite never mentioning a specific name <laughs> mm-hmm. i have a feeling they were just like hey you want to be in this movie and he's like this character doesn't have a name and then they're like oh it's charlie winters <laughs> now do you want to be in it winters. Uh, we heard the echoey replay of his blatherings about life on the sea we in the cabin we came here when they give him we slow zoom into the corner of the painting to reveal that it is dated 1891 which means one of two things 
either Charlie Winters was a ghost all along, which, who cares, or the artist was dyslexic, and it should say 1981. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it's the date backwards. Yeah. Yeah. But that's... I feel like this director happened to have a ship painting in his house. And he wrote that around the story. And he wrote this around that. Either way, we never even vaguely hint at what was killing these people. And more pedantically, I want to know why Charlie's compass ended up in the dirt. I don't get it. Is it like a good luck charm? He already killed the killer before he left it behind. I guess because his business was done. He had found the captain that he had intended to kill. But he was friends with the captain in the yeah, story he we heard. Yeah, never said anything bad I, about I the guess, captain. I, I killed guess. the guy who gave me also, this compass. Also, why is the captain killing anybody? Is the captain... I don't think the captain's even the killer. I think that it would be heresy to imply that anything that he said in this entire movie was relevant to the plot. I don't know. As the credits roll, we see that Woody Strode's character is, in fact, named Charlie Winters. And I'm guessing that this choice was made to facilitate casting him in the first place. To be fair, Woody Strode, even in 81, was too big a name to be playing cowboy or ghost cowboy in a yeah. zero-budget movie. The end. According to IMDb trivia, director Byron Quisenberry did not give his actors the ending to the script, which is a <laughs> fancy way to say that the director was still writing it yeah. when production began. <laughs> I think the more fascinating bit of trivia here is that he did give them the beginnings and middles of the script. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't give you don't give someone the end of the script unless because one of them involved mm-hmm. is the killer. Like if this was uh what the heck was that uh coal mining killer movie? My Bloody Valentine. My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, that would make sense that no one was given the end of the script. Because yeah, well, when we review that one, we'll get to that. Yeah. Wikipedia says that the cast was never informed who the killer was, and I would add, neither was the audience. <laughs> <laughs> writer-director Byron Quisenberry, his only other writer-director credit is something called Hollywood, It's a Dog's Life. Most of his credits are stunt work on titles like Earthquake, Return of the Living Dead, and Mannequin on the Move. His wife, C.L. Huff, served as the costume designer, nurse, caterer, and makeup artist on set. The music here was from Joseph Conlon. This was his first music credit, and he went on to score 40-some episodes of NCIS. Cinematographer Richard Pepin, uh, he was also a producer on the film, and this was a first-time credit for both jobs, which doesn't surprise me. He created the series L.A. Heat in the late 90s that ran for two seasons and 48 episodes, but doesn't sound familiar to me at all. Pepper Martin played Bob. He's Rocky in Superman 2 later this year. Hank Warden played John. He's Mose Harper in The Searchers. Yeah. He's Sims Reeves in Red River. He's Parson in The Alamo. And Southern Recruit in Fort Apache, not to be confused with Fort Apache the Bronx, which we'll be reviewing later. And Hank Warden also plays the... uh the bellhop at the hotel that uh, uh, Kyle Chandler's chain, not Kyle Chandler, uh, from Twin Peaks, the hotel from Twin Peaks. Oh, okay. Uh, he just constantly is just wandering around, and he would go, I know about you. Yeah. The last time we saw him was as a gas station attendant in Bronco Billy last year. Kyle Ethan- McLaughlin. That's the name I was trying yeah. to think of, not Kyle Chandler. <laughs> Ethan Wayne played Stan. He's the son of John Wayne, the Duke. Oh, my God. <laughs> Alvy Moore played Alan. He plays Dr. Moore in A Boy and His Dog. 
He's Hank Kimball in 140 episodes of Green Acres, and he provides the voice of King Jeel in Studio Ghibli's Nausicaa of the Valley. Um, That kind of probably explains the Hank Warden and Woody Strode connection. Yeah. If your father's John Wayne and you're in this film. But Stan is barely in this movie. Yeah. Bobby Diamond played Rod. He was Private Pip in the Twilight Zone episode In Praise of Pip where upon learning of the death of his son at war, a father is permitted an hour to share with his son at an amusement park. Bella Bruck played Maggie. This was her last film credit. We saw her last year as Dot in Alligator. I don't know who Dot was in no. Alligator. Possibly the mother of the kid who gets eaten at his birthday party. D. Cooper plays Fred. He played a horseman in The Return for 1980, which we've covered as a Patreon exclusive this year. Greg Palmer played Ross. He was Sergeant Hacksaw in The Man with Bogart's Face last year. He's also John Goodfellow in Big Jake with the Duke, the father of Ethan Wayne. Yeah, another John Wayne connection. Woody Strode was Charlie Winters. He's the biggest name in this film. They only had him for a day. He was the King of Ethiopia in The Ten Commandments. He was Drabba in Spartacus. He's Pompey or Pompey in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, also with the Duke. Mm-hmm. And his final role was as Charlie Moonlight in Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead. This isn't a whole movie. This is some of a movie. Mm-hmm. I learned more about this movie by reading the uh, DVD cover box picture that says that it's a bunch of people going on a rafting trip in the, on the Rio Grande in Texas who come upon a uh, deserted town and decide to camp there. I learned more about that on the cover box than I did in the entire movie. I gathered that much, but I... I, No, I guessed that much. Maybe. You don't really understand who these people are or why they're here or where they are. Even with that information, I don't get I'm just saying that, like, I feel like they they didn't establish anything on this. Also, all of the cover box art also has... um, uh, sickles on it they have scythe scythe no they have sickles on it oh which is that, not that makes, makes sense, no sense because they use scythes in the movie what's the difference between a sickle and a scythe a Scy- sickle is the circular one you know like the like the uh russian you know mm-hmm. oh okay with a short handle yeah, yeah the short handle a scythe is like the grim reaper one interesting uh but anyways they all this art has a sickle on it and i think because they like thought it was cool because they could make it look like the moon in the sky but like it's, there's not one in the movie. There's all yeah. There's not one in the movie. In fact, they keep hinting that it's going to rain or storm, but it never does. Yeah, we keep hearing lightning and thunder, and they keep saying, it "Looks like it's going to rain." Doesn't happen. I feel like they probably had like two to three weeks left to shoot, and that they ran time? out of money. You think they had that much time? I think th- I think that's how much time they expected to continue shooting mm. in order to to compile a full story together yeah and that since they don't have it they used every like you know second unit long slow pan shot because they were just like i guess we have to use this whole thing because it's still only 17 minutes well and there's also like like a full two minutes of black after the credits yeah (laughs) just to get it above some sort of threshold but i know it's part of the movie because the music's still playing that's funny that's great uh like i wonder if you could find a script for this because i'd be really interested to see what was written versus what was actually shot yeah 
I think if there is a script for this, it's written on a legal pad in Byron Quisenberry's basement somewhere. <laughs> yeah, this is a thumbs down for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a down. And it goes below Home Sweet Home for me. Miraculously, yeah. It's worse than Home Sweet Home. Because I understood what happened at the end of Home Sweet Home. Yeah, I agree. Whew. Boy, we are starting this year off right. Real strong. I think that's everything for Scream. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Underground Aces which IMDb describes like so. The escapades of a crew of zany parking lot attendants. We leave you now with a trailer for Underground Aces. Where's Murphy? He's on his lunch break. I've only got an hour. Huh? Yeah. Uh, can I help? I, uh, I need a woman. Join the club. Uh, what about Lucy? Get it. Oh, no, no, I, I mean a real woman. Oh. You see, whenever I'm about to close a big sale, I, uh, I get itchy. What business you in? Crockpots. There's another 10 spot in it, if you help. No skinny models, either. I need somebody I can hold on to. Okay, 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 what's going on here? What? Get him his car, will you? He doesn't want a car, Mr. Kruger. He wants whatever he wants. Get it for him. <laughs> but we're going to have to start providing some good old-fashioned personalized service around here from now on. Ah. I do. Find a lady who needs a crock pot. Ah, Lily, have you seen Murph? Not lately. Uh, listen, are you free for an hour? Uh huh. Well, this is awful sudden, honey. I didn't know that. Yeah, you but it's would... uh, not for me. Uh, then I'm all booked up.